Hello. Welcome to Pop Tarts. Bing, 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 bing. You're the least boring sociologist I've ever read. Reach for the stars, and the other was you're on your own. Kirko Bain was hot. Human beings don't do uncertainty well. Street doctor. <laughs> the war for flannel. I'm Emily Rems. I'm Callie Watt. We are both editors of Bust Magazine in Brooklyn, New York. We love talking to each other about pop culture. We love talking to you about pop culture. And our guest tonight is a writer that I've admired for years, but who I haven't had an opportunity to meet until today. Ada Calhoun is the author of the memoir, Wedding Toast I'll Never Give, which was named an Amazon Book of the Month and one of the top 10 memoirs of 2017. And the History, St. Mark's is Dead, one of the best books of 2015, according to Kirkus and the Boston Globe and me. I was, <laughs> I was especially you. obsessed with that one. She has collaborated on several New York Times bestsellers and written for the New York Times, New York, and the New Republic. And she's here today to talk about her brand new book that just came out, Why We Can't Sleep, Women's New Midlife Crisis, in which she examines tons of fascinating sociological data that helps to explain why so many Generation X women, like myself, are having big time issues as we enter middle age. Mm-hmm. This is a topic I can't wait to talk about, but no matter what your generation, it is a fascinating subject. Welcome, Ada. Thank you for having me. I'm a longtime fan of the magazine. Hooray. Um, I don't read a lot of nonfiction on my downtime because I read nonfiction articles all day, every day for that my job. Yeah. But I love your writing, your nonfiction writing so much because first you write about things that I'm very deeply interested in. It's like you live inside my brain and you know what I want to know. And you also present your research in a way that I find super tasty and exciting. Oh, good. Uh, I very appropriately checked out your book, St. Mark's is Dead, from the Ottendorfer Library mm-hmm. on the corner of St. Mark's and 2nd Avenue because that's my local library. Yep. And I walked around with it everywhere and I kept being super annoying. Uh, Luscious Logan might remember when, specifically <laughs> when I was reading St. Mark's is Dead because we were walking around the neighborhood and I'd be like, St. Mark's Church is the very last vestige <laughs> of Peter Stuyvesant's farm. And his farm used to be this whole everything. The entire village was his farm and now just... St. Mark's Church is all that remains and his slaves are there and he's there and everyone's there. I was just suddenly like the know-it-all tour guide <laughs> in the East Village because That's it was good. it just brought everything around me to life. Oh. I loved it so much. And then I read this book, Why We Can't Sleep, and I started griping to everyone how downward mobility is bitch. I came in here <laughs> like like at the end of last week and I was like, "Did you know that for Gen X women, only 25% of us in the workplace even have a chance of making more than our fathers. Oh, yeah. That was 30 <laughs> years ago. I was furious. I was upset. <laughs> I was beside myself. There's so much surprising research in your work that really sticks with you long after oh, you've good. read it and gives you like a new perspective on the life that you're already living. I would like to know your secret for making research so irresistible. <laughs> <laughs> that is a really lovely question. Um, and I think that I just do a sort of a stupid amount of research for everything I write, whatever it is. Um, like I over report 
a, like in a probably um, unhealthy way. Uh-huh. Like I'll talk to hundreds of people when I probably could have just talked to 12. Uh-huh. Um, and then I just whittle it down. And so I, everything that's at all boring to me, I get rid of. And I try to just make, I try to make it so I'm never bored with it. You're the least boring sociologist I've ever read. <laughs> Thank you. So talk to our readers, our readers. Huh? I'm so used to saying readers. Yeah. Please talk to our listeners <laughs> a bit more about the premise of your book, Why We Can't Sleep. Explain how it came out. I know that it started out as an article for Oprah.com. Yes. Went berserk viral. And then it got picked up uh, as a full-length book. Tell tell them everything that it's about and how it came to be. Sure. Um, so this was like a couple summers ago. I was having a really terrible time. I've been freelance for about 10 years and I ghostwrite and I write my own books and I write for magazines. And But the work was just drying up a little bit. Like I was just having a, a rough spell and I thought, oh, like this might not be sustainable. I'm supporting a family. I've got, you know, one kid in college and one kid in middle school. And I just, I started to get a little scared um, about money and work. And so then I was like, I'll just go get a magazine job. Turns out there's no no more magazine jobs. I had Shocker. no idea. <laughs> In the last 10 years, they all went away. And um, so I, I had had this fantasy of like falling back into like corporate life. And there was no corporate uh, life available to me, it turned out. So then I was really freaked out. Um, and the summer was just depressing because I just was like looking at what I'd done and what I hadn't done. And, um, and I just felt broke and depressed. And I was having really bad perimenopause symptoms. And I was not sleeping at all. And it was just sort of one thing after the other. And right in the middle of this horrible summer, this editor from Oprah.com called and said, you know, I am really miserable. A lot of my friends are miserable. We don't know why. Will you look at our generation and like what is going on with us? <laughs> and I was like, awesome. your timing is amazing. <laughs> so, um, so I did. I took a few weeks and I wrote this um, 6,000 word story trying to look at if we're unhappy, why might that be? That is not our fault. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think one thing that we tend to do is um, work really hard and think, oh, we'll just keep working harder and harder and harder and we'll figure it out. And there just comes a point where you're like, this it's not not getting figured out this way. So maybe there's something more to it. And that was the idea behind the story it was just looking at at all the different factors. And a lot of them were uh, economic and a lot of them were sociological. And um, and so I just I went through them all and I think when people read it, they seemed to feel sort of liberated by this idea that there was a context mm-hmm. to whatever they were exper- we were experiencing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I got asked to do a, a book and so then I expanded all those Can you parts. be specific about how, how viral we're talking when we say it went viral? Um, I All I know is like it was like on Facebook, it was like hundreds of thousands of shares in like three days. Yeah. And it was so like I had friends who were like, I liked your story, but could I have my Facebook wall back? Because it's like every single <laughs> one of their, like her friends was like tagging her in it. Um, <laughs> and it was always like, and it was funny whenever people were like, cause I didn't got all these emails. I got like hundreds of emails and I was, and they were like, this is my life. And I'm like, I'm so sorry. Like I, <laughs> like I'm flattered and happy, but I'm also really sorry for you because it's rough. But it is at in some way an affirmation of what you're the yes. work you're doing in the first place. If we're all like, oh, shit. Yeah. No, I felt I mean, it made me feel sad in certain ways. But then it also made me feel like great. Like, first of all, just having written something that actually seemed to resonate. But then mm-hmm. also just on a personal level, I've been having such a hard time. And just hearing from all these other women that they were having a hard time in similar ways mm-hmm. and had had I similar experience. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like the sleeping and the money and the. Um, and the career stuff and like all of it just hitting right at the same time. And we're all 
I mean, 30 million of us are like doing that right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and some are, some are having a perfectly magnificent, you know, empowered Pilates-tastic uh, <laughs> middle age, <laughs> but many are not. The book is about Gen X women. I know that there's, there's some debate over what that even means. Like our boss ladies are, um, were born around 1960. Mm-hmm. In the scope of your book, you say that Gen X is from 65 to 80. Yeah. Um, but they are very adamant that they are Gen X, and I believe them. Yeah, I Bust think it's a, is a very Gen X thing. It's mm-hmm. a choice every woman must make for herself, I think, <laughs> yeah. like whether or not to identify as Generation X. But I knew for sure that your book was talking about me because we're the same age. Oh, nice. I'm in that zone that's either a millennial, but I'm not a millennial. You're the oldest millennial. Right. Uh, I think you summed up the journey that your book takes very beautifully towards the end, if, if I may quote you. Please do. You wrote, Maybe the Generation X story need not be we're broke, we're unstable, we're alone. Maybe it can be we've had our hard row to hoe. We've been one big experiment. And yet, look at us. We've accomplished so much. You go on to say, I keep thinking about the 80s TV show Double Dare in which child contestants had to find orange flags in mountains of slime. That is an excellent analogy for our generation in midlife. In the context of your book, the mountains of slime that we're pushing through generationally are... You talk about the pressures of so many possibilities for us after um, our second wave moms kicked the door open for us and then, holy shit, we could do anything. The doldrums of midlife, caring for both kids and parents, job instability, money panic as a result of the shit economy that we got from the boomers. Thanks Mm -hmm. so much. Decision fatigue, the rise of single and childless women in midlife. Divorce chaos, perimenopause issues, and our generation's preoccupation with social media. I was shocked to read in your um, in your book that Gen X women are more addicted to social media than millennials. That I know, I was surprised by that too. There yeah. was a study that was saying that the um, the hours we spend, it's like several hours more. More, a week. yeah. Shocking. Out of That's all crazy. of these, I know it blew my mind. What are the millennials? Are they they're playing video games? Does that not count? (laughs) They're living lives. On the internet, though. I don't know. (laughs) Out of all these factors, are there any that you heard Gen X women freaking out about the most while doing your research? Like, is it all of these things? Obviously, some people are married, and some are divorced, and some are single, so, like, they don't apply to everyone. But was there something that everyone was like, holy fucking shit? Um, I think that maybe the macro issue that wove through everything was the expectations piece of it Mm -hmm. that you mentioned. So I think... Growing up with this idea, like, you can be anything, even president. And, like, I had this one woman I interviewed, and she said, like, she want, really wanted to be a nurse. And her mom kept saying, like, why not a doctor? You should be a doctor. You can be a doctor. You know, girls can be doctors, too. And it was so well-intentioned and mm-hmm. such a good thing, we know, to tell girls. And yet, for our generation, I think there was just this huge pressure to do it, um, to, to, to make all this headway, um, and to do it while also having all these other things going on mm-hmm. um, and to do it all well and to do it all beautifully and to, and also to have no support. So I think I say in the book, like there are a couple of messages we got and, and one was you can do anything, reach for the stars. And the other was you're on your own and it's all up to you. Mm-hmm. The whole on your own bit, it came up a lot in the book and it also um, sparked a very interesting conversation that I had with my mom. Oh, good. Um, well, I was reading this book I like I said I'm your age and my upbringing in the 1980s I would define as terrifyingly unsupervised. Uh-huh. I think that's common for my us. My mom yeah. uh 
called my brother and I free range children, <laughs> like like the chickens. It's more self aware than than many um, boomer parents. When I asked her about, you know, I I was sort of referring to your book as a nice little sideways thing to being like, what the fuck? <laughs> but you know, because she, you talk in the book about how like when my mom was growing up. Only 12% of women with school age kids like were out of the house. Like right. they would come home from school and mom would yes, be there. Yes, she was there. And um, in, in this day and age, like with Gen X moms, like 75% are working, but there is still childcare. It exists. Well, and they spend more time with their kids. I mean, that was another crazy statistic is like um, Gen X moms who work full time spend more time with their children, like quality time interacting with them than stay-at-home moms did in the 70s. Right. Crazy. And so, like, I was asking my mom, you know, like, you grew up with, like, a mom who was home, Mm -hmm. and then you had a kid, and no one was home. Like, why, like, what made, I I, I made sure to tell her uh, that this was not a referendum on her parenting, (laughs) that I was reading this book, and, like, apparently, like, it was across America. Like, we were just free-range elementary school age mm-hmm. kids running around getting into all sorts of shit. Yeah. And I asked her why societally, just sort of like socially, she came to the conclusion that that was cool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and <Acceptable>. she, <laughs> I, I know so many people whose stories are like, you know, if any of this stuff happened today, we would have been taken away from our parents. Mm-hmm. But it was a different time. It was a different time. Um, and so, so many of us have these stories. And she said, you know, we were in the midst of the second wave movement. Like we were really living it. Yeah. And that she said that we were in um, a suburb of New York City, um, just like a, an hour and a half away. Uh-huh. And she said that the women she knew at the cocktail parties, at the, at the, whatever socializing was happening, women were asking each other, what do you do? Mm-hmm. And you had to have some kind of a career, even if it was like a volunteer career, like Uh even if it like it had to be some kind of activism, it had to be some kind of career. It had to be something outside of the home. Uh And if you if someone said, what do you do? And you were a stay at home mom, people would like go and excuse themselves to get another glass of wine and Uh not come back. Well, I think it's rude. Yeah. Like it's, it's a valid choice. But she said at that time, like it was so important important for women to establish themselves outside mm-hmm. of the home right. that they really like were drawing very tribal lines mm-hmm. and I was like well all you guys when you were you all right you had careers and you established that you and your peers had careers did you ever ask each other who's watching your kids and she was like oh, no she said that to ask a, a woman who worked who was watching her kids was like asking her what she did in the bedroom Oh, that's so interesting. She said, huh. like, you would never do I could, it. I guess I see because it's sort of insult. Like, you could take it as being like, oh, I'm supposed to be with my kids. So that's why you're asking me. And she also said, I'm not one of those women who has a nanny. Mm-hmm. Like, that was like, it would have been gross. Huh. So then you just have no one watch the kid. <laughs> yeah. Like, I don't I don't totally know why, like, no one is makes it like somehow seem better than being one of those women who has a nanny. Because right. I asked her also, I was like, was it, was the cost of childcare prohibitive to you and dad? Like, was that part of the decision making? She uh-huh. was like, no. <laughs> she was like, we definitely could have afforded it. Huh. Yeah. Oh. It just wasn't done. It was just, you know, the kids. It, I think people also maybe thought it was good for us 
to be independent and mm-hmm. to like learn how to cook our own meals and things like that. We or had at a least re- my mom was a babysitter. I wonder if this idea that we not only are we supposed to be able to handle everything, but in a way we did. Yeah. Like we handled all our shit when we were too young to really be doing it. Mm-hmm. And now that we're old enough to be doing it, we have this sort of world weariness mm-hmm. to us or maybe this idea that we really should be able to handle everything because we handled so much already. Oh. But it's not coming together. I think that's right. Or it is coming together, but at what cost? I mean, I, I think that so many women I talk to and so many women I know um, uh, are doing all the things all day long, all, mm-hmm. all the time. So they're mm-hmm. they're having really close relationships with their children where they're nurturing and growing them and they're, they're they know their teachers and they've got their homework help going and they've got all this stuff and they're cooking meals and they're going to exercise class and they have friends and they have a super stressful full-time job and that they have to be on call for from 6 a.m. until one in the morning and then they're also trying to keep a nice home and have a like stimulating marriage and they're you know it's just like it's it's out of control so I I think it is maybe that like you said that instinct we had towards self-preservation as children left to roam the streets and then we're applying that I can do anything model Mm -hmm. to doing everything. And it just, I think a lot of women I talk to are like close to the breaking point. Yeah. Let's talk pop culture because that's the thrust of this program. (laughs) Uh, You name drop quite a few important movies and shows that really shaped not only the identities of Gen X women, but also the men we decided to pursue. (laughs) Um, I'm going to read through the, the, ones that you name check, and you can tell me what comes to mind in terms of their cultural reverberations. Slacker, 1990. Uh, I think it's that whole slacker thing is so interesting to me because it's never been true of women from this generation. Mm-hmm. Maybe I think some men, maybe in Austin circa 1992, maybe there was a sort of slacker guy phenomenon. But do you know any women who really fit that like laid back skatery like i know women who tried but like scratch that veneer just a little bit and they're kind of stressed and they have four jobs yeah Yeah. (laughs) my sister is my older sister well she goes through waves she she would be very content never working at all that's true i think there are obviously exceptions to the role but i think in general i think as a generation wonderful slackers (laughs) (laughs) singles 1992 Oh, what do you remember about singles? Is that the one with the guy with the big head? Dave Perner? Matt. Uh, and he has a large face. And Matt Dillon is in it? Yes. Yeah. And they and don't they have a replacement song in it? Na, 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 na. Oh, Wait. and then that, yeah. Na, na, is that na, during na, na, a na. war? No. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, <laughs> the war for flannel. Man, okay, I don't think I'm thinking of the right movie. I mix up singles and reality bites sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, reality bites reason. you have um, a, appended to all Ethan Hawke movies in the 90s. Yeah, and because she had to choose between Ethan Hawke and Ben Stiller, mm-hmm. and you look at it now, and you're like, Ethan Hawke was kind of terrible. Mm-hmm. He, wasn't he kind of horrible in that yeah, movie? But Ethan Hawke, as you point out in the book, when he, he tells Winona Ryder that all they need to be happy are cigarettes, coffee, and conversation. And I bit that. <laughs> I I was like, that's that's my man. Like Jim Jarvis just yeah. made a whole movie yeah. on that. Oh, indeed he did. That that's right. Yeah. I kind of have that life partner now. I'm not going to lie. Aw. That's so romantic. <laughs> He's right here at this table. He's right here at this table. Um, The partner I don't have is Ferris Bueller's Day Off, 1986. 
Thank goodness. Oh, I yeah, do. Yeah, that would be selfish. He really? I mean, he's no fun. Camilla's like that. He, he is kind of. Camilla would totally end up in a parade. Yeah, I was All saying your, your man is like always on a float somewhere. <laughs> yeah. So I take it back. You ended up with Ferris Bueller. Yeah. But um, a nicer one. But can you imagine co-parenting with him? Yeah, it'd be fun as fuck. <laughs> <laughs> um, risky business, 1983. I like the underpants, yeah. but I don't like the Scientology as much. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Although we, we didn't really know the depth of that at the time. Yeah, I don't even really remember much about that except the dance scene and that he threw a crazy party. Well, it's a prostitution ring. Yeah, right? he, he, start- he oh. starts a, prost- a teenage prostitution ring. He's very precocious when it comes to exploiting women for his yeah. own personal gain. And watch this. I don't it. remember much of this at all except that dance scene. Yeah, he like calls up uh, a sex worker because his parents are out of town. And they're like, hey, can we um, use your home as a bordello while your parents are out of town? And he's like, yes. Oh. <laughs> Indeed, you may. <laughs> I totally forgot that whole plot. I just remembered a party. And of course, you name check working girl, which is really less about Harrison Ford and more just about Melanie Griffith worship. And it's a wonderful movie. It really shoulder holds pads, up. Shoulder pads, shoulder pads. I don't really pads. remember that one at all either. Oh, oh she lets the river run, Callie. She does. <laughs> I guess she rides the Staten Island Ferry. It's so... <laughs> It's a mosh. I su- I recommend it. Really, I mean, it sounds like something I should have and seen already. Sigourney Weaver's like the the mean, terrible. Um, she's girl on girl crime. She, oh, yeah, personified. Yeah, and then the trophy dudes of the '90s: Eddie Vedder's and Kurt Cobain's. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember them. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Oh. Luscious Logan piping up with the trenchant knowledge that Eddie Vedder is in singles. That's right. This is definitely that. not the movie I'm thinking of. <laughs> I need to rewatch. Kurt singles. Cobain not in singles. I don't know. I feel like I should be Team Eddie Vedder somehow politically, but I am Team Kurt Cobain. I mean, I just preferred Nirvana. I have more of a lady boner for Kurt. Cobain. <laughs> yeah, Kurt Cobain was hot. Um. So, what do these dudes say about who we pursued and? have attempted to build lives with if we're hetero women did these fantasies fuck us up uh well there's that there's that john cusack speech and say anything i don't mm-hmm. want to buy anything sell anything or process anything yeah <laughs> or, or buy anything sold or processed or process anything sold, sold or bought or, or whatever and um and i had one woman i interviewed say like that is so riveting right like when you first hear it when you're 19 years old like that is the coolest most it was hot. philosophical sexy like magical um phrase and then then what did she say she was like and then that guy is sitting in your futon playing video games and he's 42 and And kickboxing yeah and wearing a star wars t-shirt and it's not as charming those things don't age necessarily that well (laughs) this is her point women i i also had a boner for john cusack because of that movie and i've had folks Women say to me like, "Oh, that's stalking." When he like, yeah, I thought that was creepy as fuck. Was that you who said that to me? Yeah, if somebody showed up at my house when I was in high school with a fucking boombox (laughs) in the rain, how dare you? (laughs) I'm just saying, like, that was the shit. I loved it. I would have thrown something at him. I love he wants someone to be obsessed with with me, but only as as long as I'm flattered by it, like not and not a moment longer. (laughs) Yeah, do not show up at my house. A lot lot of those movies, you look back on them now and music and all of that. I feel like that we just soaked up. Like you do look back on it now from the 2019 vantage point and it's, it's oh yeah, 
almost mm-hmm. all the old movies when you watch you're like oh wouldn't make it through the editing process now but it's funny to think of all of those people all those characters with like mortgages <laughs> <It's true. laughs> and like you know trying to like getting laid off and then trying to restart a new career yeah. and all that stuff i read some like newsweek story from the 90s and the guy was like you know not getting hurt it's a big priority with me and I did some math. I was like, that guy is like 49 right now. And I wonder how he is. <laughs> yeah, how, I wonder how that's <laughs> How'd that going. that out? <laughs> All right. You used a psychological term in the book that I had never heard before, but I found it kind of chilling. Kind of poignant, kind of chilling. <laughs> Uh-oh. You described a sensation of ambiguous loss. Oh, yeah. Which is defined as a desired partner or baby or job or whatever, being psychologically present in a person's mind, but physically absent. It seems inevitable that as this generation that was raised by second wave feminists, we would attempt to be having it all, (laughs) having it all. But your whole book explains why that isn't a reality. Like, that's just not a thing. So we have this phantom limb feeling for whatever part of having it all that we don't have. Yeah. Um, How do we learn to manage our expectations without selling ourselves short? Um, well, that I love that term, ambiguous loss. It was wasn't mine. It was this um, this therapist I talked to, um, and her thing was just that like human beings don't do uncertainty well. That mm-hmm. there's this like if there is doubt, that everything is a million times more painful than if you just knew someone was dead or someone was never showing up. Mm-hmm. Um, so I mean, I I think trying to avoid living in that uncertainty mm-hmm. whenever possible, just reconciling oneself to the way things are. Um, and just changing those expectations. I mean, I think we just, we didn't, it wasn't realistic what we thought we were going to accomplish. Mm-hmm. But some things like seem like they should be realistic. Like I never had a kid because I never was financially secure enough to do so. Mm-hmm. And one and two, I never saw a model of a working woman responsibly parenting a young child. Mm-hmm. And I like just literally have like when I sit back and I think about my life and like how a kid would fit into it I don't every literally every single thing about my life would have to change mm-hmm. I would have to have a different job I'd have to have a different apartment have to have a different partner I'd have to live in an entirely different pl- I'm, th- <laughs> He's it's, real, it's real talk Chuckling. like yeah. and and like I have all of those things because I like them right. yeah so it would be so weird but the <laughs> the phantom limb feeling that I have more often than wondering if I should have had a kid Mm -hmm. was really when I imagined my life at this age I really imagined a table Mm -hmm. with chairs around Uh, you have no space for that and I've never because like I had this idea as a a 15 year old hanging out in the East Village that the East Village Mm -hmm. is my spiritual home and I would do anything I would lay my life on the line to live in the East Village Uh because that is the place, the only place in the whole world that was like, come live in me. <laughs> I'm yours to live in. Like, that reality is not easy. Mm-hmm. I did attain it. I have attained it. Um, but never to the degree in which there was enough space for a table and chairs mm-hmm, around it. Mm-hmm. And I imagined myself in my 40s cooking a meal uh-huh. and putting it on a table Aww. and then sitting at a chair at the table and then eating it and even just talking about it. I can feel tears coming Aww. to my eyes because it's so real. Yeah. But that's, it's this weird phantom limb. Like, I can still have a satisfying life without a table. Right. But it's the, um, like, I've imagined it so many thousands of times. There's something so positive, though, about, I think, the way that you're describing that and the way that so many Gen X women are about 
how we want to do things right. Like we want things to be good. Like, you know, I feel like a lot of our parents were like, oh, you can have a kid. Like, just have a kid. It's fine. Like, they'll be over there. They'll get themselves <laughs> right? to school. And they'll like, figure out dinner. How are you going to afford to push that out? So it's That's like, where I'm at. Yeah. There's a, there's a responsibility that we have that, is, that keeps us, I think, from just doing things be- selfishly. Well, because we experience what happens when people just wing it. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's true. It's <laughs> definitely we true. We don't have to wonder what that would be yes. like. <laughs> we could, it'll probably work out. We're like, oh, we've been there. It doesn't work out. But it did because here we are. Here we are. No, it's true. Yeah. So maybe, maybe we both. should remember that. But, um, but no, I, and I think one thing that I heard from so many people was, oh, they waited to have a family until they, were, they, they felt like they were in a good place to do that. And that might never have happened or by the time it did, there were fertility things or whatever. Right. And it's like, that was such a logical thing to do, like to wait. And, and it, and I feel like then they're told there are all these books that are like, you should have a baby when you're 26. How dare you? Blah, 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 blah. Like you're going against nature. But it's like, they made very reasonable decisions given the circumstances and nobody was helping them. Right. You know, on the one hand, there are these really having it all unreasonable expectations. The other, on the other end, I don't think our expectations are all that unreasonable. If we, if we had had any support, if there had been, if, if there we were, were living in Finland. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, if there were elements of that, even just a few little, you know, I mean, if you lived around. anywhere else, you'd have a table in my. That's right. Yeah. No, honestly, <laughs> it's literally the size. If you even just moved out of the Lower East Side, you have a table. Probably. <laughs> yeah. But it's like, what do you compromise? Like, what do you, and I, and I think that's just a question that in midlife, a lot of people wind up asking themselves is like, which, which of these things are negotiable? Is my leaving my spiritual home negotiable? Mm-hmm. Is leaving my dream job negotiable? I'm going to start like, calling it your spiritual home. Stay in the spiritual. <laughs> <laughs> but this is, this is just my long tangent in trying to talk about the ambiguous loss that you were describing and how poignant I found it. Because it's it's just kind of like a weird catch twenty two. Well, and I mm-hmm. heard it from a lot of people, no matter what their circumstances were. So, like at one point, I was in Texas, and this woman who's super successful, she was like, "What did I do wrong? Why don't I have family? I always thought I have a family." And then I was like in Oregon, and this woman's like, you know, has the baby sleeping on her chest and the two kids running around, and she's like, "What did I do wrong? Like, how come I never had a career?" And I'm like, "This is really." It's just interesting, this, this self-blame and this sense of, like, I screwed up somewhere. Surely it's not structural um, problems. Surely it must be me having just missed a turn at some point. And right. I, so I think the, one of the points of the book is, like, it wasn't like we, it wasn't like we all just failed or, you know. Or we did, haven't been fucking around. Right. No, there's, it, it's, it's not all on our shoulders how things wind up. You know? Right. Um, in your chapter called New Narratives. You said that writing Why We Can't Sleep cured your midlife crisis. And you also credit your improved outlook with cultivating your relationships with other women. Tell me about these discoveries you made while writing (laughs) this book. It really is true. It really helped. So, and I think it was like three parts. So one is I just got way more support. Like I just cultivated these relationships and I have this amazing army of friends of women friends and um and I spend a lot of time with them. My my husband was like, you know, did you just like manifest all these women? <laughs> like they just, you were like, I need this. And then here they are. Um and that has been a huge improvement to my life. But then also like support I like got a better gynecologist who knew what she was talking about. And I, you know, got a good cat sitter and I got a good therapist and an accountant. And like I kind of have this 
um, I just arrayed my forces in this way. So I had some kind of backup and I wasn't trying to do everything myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I really do think my expectations were lowered substantially by doing this book. Like, why did I think that I was somehow going to pull it off if all these incredibly smart and interesting women that I talked to weren't able to do everything they thought they were going to? Mm-hmm. Um, and then also just realizing it's like well, a limited span of time. Like, yeah. I feel like after after menopause, like things are different. And like I talked mm-hmm. to all these women who are like in their 50s and 60s who are like, oh, no, things change and your perspective changes. It's just like there is they this make it sound like amazing. <laughs> I mean, I think for a lot of women, it really is. And I can see it like I can, you know, especially just because like right now. So it was good that I did this book when I did, because then like the shit totally hit the fan like this last few months with, you know, people in my family getting sick and tragedies happening and people dying and all this it's been really dramatic mm. and uh i'm very sorry to hear that Damn. thank you it's been really awful <laughs> but i i have a much better outlook than i would have had before oh. i did this book and i really felt like much better equipped to handle it all and did you have like a, a bigger support system oh to yeah on? way bigger i mean just i really i felt like with everything that's happened i was i had a million people i could talk to and who i could go to for anything and people to make casseroles and you know all that good stuff so, mm-hmm. um, so I feel very fortunate. Not to be a creep or anything, but I want to apply to be in your girl gang. It sounds You're super great. You're welcome to it. <laughs> and Come along. Also, I underlined the name of your gynecologist in the book and put a little <laughs> asterisk next to it. Can I just tell you that the last gynecologist that I had said that women over a certain body weight that I personally was over don't deserve health care. <gasps> what the fuck? And he said a medical it doctor while, said this while I was in stirrups. I oh, was told no. that I didn't deserve health care. So she I would love a new that gynecologist. That is the times when you really wish you could just fart on demand. <laughs> <laughs> I probably could have, but I was too busy crying. Oh, what a fucker. That's outrageous. I I'm mean, ready to call your, your gynecologist. Yeah, well, there's, there, are a lot of, there are a lot of good ones out there. They're not as many as there should be. I feel be. like you should put that gyno on blast. <laughs> Lose their license for sure. Though. I probably should. <laughs> um, are you a feminist, Ada Calhoun? Oh, yeah. In the book you write, it's easy to declare that feminism has made us unhappy. People might say, you do not like all these, all these possibilities. No problem. We'll take them away. But I am not knocking choices. Just saying that having so many of them with so little support has led to a great deal of shame. Tell me more about this idea and how your concept of feminism has evolved whilst writing the book. <laughs> um, well, I just think that we need to be honest about when things are hard. And I think that a lot of women I talked to who, for instance, were not happy single said they didn't necessarily want to go on the record as being unhappy being single because they thought it was undermining the cause somehow. Mm -hmm. And actually, women who were working super hard in these stressful jobs also didn't want to necessarily talk too much about how it was hard because they felt like it undermined the cause. And I think um, I think maybe we're isolating ourselves from one another if we try to make it look too good mm-hmm. does that make sense yeah yeah totally like if we could be real with each other then we could connect more easily i think so and i think it would just feel a little feel a little fuller the experience of um you know of being being friends and on the same side so we're like how they encourage women to talk about their salaries and stuff open. yeah then we know People when we're know. getting ripped off yeah and i, I think- just don't because it's so little money I'm- <laughs> <laughs> i think money in general talking about it i mean i had I had no idea that like a lot of my friends had credit card debt because I had it and I was like 
living with the shame. I was like, I've been working so hard for so many years and I feel like I'm fairly frugal. Like, how is it possible that I got in this hole? And then I started talking about it more and I just, it's, it's really helped. And I think like forming little clubs really helps. I have some friends who have like money club and they meet. I was about to say, do you have a credit card debt club? (laughs) (laughs) What's money club? Where they get together and they they go over like how much money their they have finances and how yeah and they just talk about it really up- and then they smart. share like secrets and tricks and like you know talk about credit scores and how to improve them and wow that is really smart that's some stigma busting right there that's yeah. amazing I want to start a money club but we need money <laughs> <laughs> do you need money to start a money club do you need a table to have a money club? <laughs> what are your hopes and your dreams and your plans for twenty twenty what's on your vision board. I don't have a vision board. Maybe I need a vision board. Um, I want everything to calm down. I think like all the family, like I've just, it's been, it's just been a really crazy few months. So I've just been like, anytime I have a free moment, I'm just like staring at New York one, like blankly and like absorbing. Oh mm-hmm. <laughs> so I'd like to have like the bandwidth to like read a book. And um, so, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I just, I'd like, like a little more peace in that way. Um, and then I hope everybody reads the book and talks about the book. <laughs> It was just born. How does that feel? Like it was, it just came into the world. Uh, good. Yeah. It's been, I mean, I just, it's really funny just to get like these messages and it's also so interesting to see like what people relate to and, and mm-hmm. what they connect with. And they're like, sometimes it's really specific, like little moments or, or like little, just little things. And I'm like, it, it's, or like, I have like a mixtape of songs at the back and like mm-hmm. people who are like listening to all the songs in the mixtape or things like that. It really, it's, it's fun. It's, it, I like being a writer. and i like so much that you like being a writer because that means you write more tasty things for me oh thank you so much do you have time to stick around and talk with callie and i about what we've been watching sure awesome that sounds great we're gonna take the briefest of breaks and when we return we're gonna ask ada ada's gonna ask callie and callie's going to ask me what What you watching (laughs) hey podcast fans did you know that the best place to listen to your favorite shows ad free is stitcher premium They've got Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend, My Favorite Murder, Wolverine The Lost Trail, Bitch Sesh, The Fantasy Footballers, Science Rules with Bill Nye, and more, all without commercial interruptions. And we can hook you up with a sweet deal. To get one month free, go to stitcher.com slash premium and use promo code POPTARTS. That's stitcher.com slash premium, promo code POPTARTS. Before we get back to the show, I want to tell you about our new sponsor, Wolfie Vibes Publicity. If you're working on a new project and find yourself in need of a kick-ass publicist who communicates well and works tirelessly to get you the coverage you're after, consider going to Wolfie Vibes Publicity. Wolfie Vibes Publicity is a female-owned and operated boutique PR firm that will get you where you need to be, and you'll even have fun in the process. Get in touch via wolfievibespublicity.com for details and quotes. And tell them that Pop-Tart sent you. Uh, essentially, I started it because every female comedian I know was amazing and hardworking and hilarious. And I knew would make great podcasts. And every male comedian I know already had a podcast and was doing their own thing. <laughs> Hi, I'm Kate Moldenhauer, the founder of More Banana Podcasts, a comedy podcast network entirely produced, hosted, and led by women. Do you want to hear awkward sex stories told with no judgment? 
Hi guys, welcome back at Awkward Sex in the City. I do dabble with around the booty and the butthole. Okay, I like the dabble around the booty phrase. Dabbling, eating, whatever you want to do. We're all sexual people, so like everybody, you know, has their thing. And it was introduced to me years ago, and I was like, oh shit, this feels good, you know. And do you secretly wish there was a show out there dedicated to studying bro culture? Hey everybody, welcome back to Sweet, a lady's guide to bro culture. One of, my, one of my favorite parts of the movie is that uh, Emily Ratajkowski has a crazy last name, but they still have to pronounce it every time. So it's a lot yes. of bros being like, oh, dude, Emily Ratajkowski, yeah. bro. <laughs> yeah, and they, oh, right, and even though the characters know her. What about a podcast for mental health and wellness that's hosted by two roller derby players? Welcome to Frau Pow, where your hosts, Auden Rags. I think it was by psychologists that they talk to people with anxiety and depression and that they tend to watch the same TV shows or movies over and over again. And it's like a self-soothing soothing action. Because women are actually pretty versatile and funny. More Banana is a network of women's voices, unfiltered and uninterrupted. Find us everywhere you get your podcasts and learn about our growing roster of shows at morebanana.com. And we're back. Hello. We are at the segment of the program called What You Watching. And when I say What You Watching, it is a very broad question. It encapsulates, encompasses even movies, books, television, music, music videos, podcasts, anything that is pop culture that you are consuming, we want to know because it's probably cool. Ada Calhoun, What You Watching? Um, I'm watching Mrs. Fletcher. Okay. The Tom Parada. I saw the first episode now. What did you think? Uh, I liked the first one, but didn't have, I just didn't keep going. So I wasn't totally he's such a good writer. I, I shared a cab with him once at the Decatur Book Festival and I felt like I was totally starstruck. Wow. Um, I just think that book was so well done. And so it's, also, it's just really fascinating to me to see how they're adapting it and he, how he's adapting it for the screen. I think it's really, I think it's really smart. Cool. What else? There more. I should well, be watching more. Um, <laughs> oh, you know what I've been watching that's kind of interesting is that TV show Sybil from the 90s, the Sybil oh, Shepherd. Yeah. <laughs> it's streaming. I've seen it on the streaming It's free platforms. on the Amazon Prime right now. And so I've been watching it and it's really interesting to see There's how they talk about. There's some shoulder pads on that show. Oh, yeah, there are. <laughs> there sure are. And the high necks with the necklaces around them and mm-hmm. the whole thing. Yeah. Sybil. Wow. Who's her best friend on that show? Um, uh, her name is Marianne. She's a drunk socialite played by Christine Baranski. Yes, Christine Baranski. Steals all the scenes. Oh, She's unbelievable in that Truly. show. Truly. I love going back and watching old 80s shows. Yeah. Like Designing Women. Mm. Yeah, Designing Women is streaming on Hulu. So good. It stands up most of the time. Yeah, for the most part. What are you watching? Let's see. Um, I saw one episode on Being a God in Central Florida. Oh, and that has Beth Ditto on it. Yes, I didn't even recognize it was Beth Ditto. And then at the end, I was like looking up something, and I was like, Beth Ditto. I had to go back and relook. Very low key. I love her because so she's just much. you know I'm just used to seeing glam glam Ditto. Uh huh. Yeah. <laughs> it was pretty good. Um, it's kind of slow creeping. Kristen Dunst is. I missed her. She hasn't. What has she been doing lately? You know, like she, she like went on like a a Lars von Trier bender, and then I guess had to take a few years off, uh, <laughs> as one does. Yeah. 
Well, her husband owns, it, is involved with some like pyramid scheme situation. Oh, no. Oh, no. And then I can't tell you how the first episode ends because it will ruin everything. But anyway, it was all right. Okay. But I, I think I only got one episode free, so yeah. I may <laughs> never know what happened. That's where I'm at with that. As you've heard me talking in the office, Riverdale is gone batshit bananas cuckoo crazy still. I really have to watch to catch so up. It is so insane. I mean, did I talk to you last time about how there was a drive-by shooting and then it's never addressed again? Yes. <laughs> and <laughs> the show is just so, so wild. And now they ended this one. Like, they keep alluding to maybe Jughead's dead. Like, in the past couple seasons, like, one, he's, like, on a morgue stretcher at the end. And then on another, like, they have to burn his beanie and everybody's covered oh, in blood. They burned and his beanie? They burned his crown beanie. And then at the end of this one, it was Jughead, Veronica, and Betty. And they're, like, taken to the jail and they're in a lineup and someone's like yeah those are the kids we saw kill jughead what the fuck so then talk I, about kids who are free range yeah, oh, yeah those right archies now. are over the top dude free range. i'm so confused as to when in the they have like a speakeasy in the basement that was serving mocktails but now it's definitely real booze and she's definitely trying to start a rom, a rom empire but she's not even hmm. of age yet she's still in high school yeah and they all have straight A's, but they're like never. In <laughs> they're school. never in school. I mean, Archie dropped out, so he's not in school because so he's he can living be in at a gym. Club. Yeah, running a gym and then putting on like a mask to go avenge people in the night. Yeah, there's so much going on in this show. And then there was the one of the one somebody's getting uh, harassed by a demonic doll that is the. Spirit of the twin she ate in the womb. <gasps> I love a possessed doll <laughs> or just object. Yeah, I love a cursed object. Like Did you watch Annabelle? Yeah. Oh. This therapist is coming to like give everybody evaluations before they go to college, and she's talking to that, her, and she's like, she's already been through a cult. Her other <laughs> twin brother died. Blah blah blah. And she was like, you know, you could just take a test to see if you ate your twin. She's like, there's a test for that. <laughs> she's like, yeah, I know a doctor. And then she's like, and by the way, the doll, more likely someone's just moving the doll around to fuck with you. And she was like, oh. oh. <laughs> I think it's so hot that Gina Gershon is Jughead's mom. There's, I mean, there's so many parents in this show are yeah. amazing. I'm all about the parents. I saw Dirty John. I never didn't hear the podcast about it. I was obsessed with the podcast, but I haven't seen the show yet. Did you say that it was on, Um, what platform is it on, on Netflix? Netflix? On Netflix. I have to watch it. Well, that shit is wild but the wildest thing so it's like this lady that gets um duped by this grifter guy and he does some really crazy fucking shit but he's not even that cute and he's not funny hmm. the actor or the real guy the real guy i googled him and i was like right. this? Yeah, i did too and then uh, like in the show the real guy like or in the show she's like i just want a man that's funny and i was like the stuff that women put up with when they cannot yet. tolerate being alone it can be shocked. It made me realize that people's standards of humor are very low. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that was just, I, no, I, the whole time I was just pissed at how not amazing this dude was. Not amazing. Not amazing <laughs> And all. totes not worth it. Um, I did a throwback to this movie Pandemonium while I was home um, for a holiday with my sister. Was that the animated pandas? No, oh. this is a 1982 spoof horror comedy. That has, um, who is in it that you, oh, Paul Rubens plays a Canadian Mountie's assistant. Heart. The Canadian Mountie never comes off his horse, except once it's a dance with someone in a gym. Carol Kane is in it. She's Can I amazing. just give you a Paul Rubens sidebar that it's yes. the 35th 
next year's the 35th anniversary of um of Wee's big adventure mm-hmm. and he's going on tour with the movie all over america showing it on the big screen and then doing talkbacks afterwards and the one in new york is on my birthday and i cannot wait that's amazing i love it i just was listening to your um interview with murray hill who's a good friend of mine and he of course was working with oh, paul rubin oh, he's so good oh this movie is two so legends good, together i know it's really it's the best exciting this is about a cheerleading camp, and then the the cheerleaders are, what is it? Um, Mandy, Candy, Sandy, Andy, and Glenn Dandy, <laughs> and everything. It's just very slapsticky, and um, there's a murderer on the loose that turns people into furniture, which is ridiculous. And then there's also somebody who escaped from a from a mental hospital, and then they're going to the cheerleading camp to cause a ruckus. Uh huh. And it's just absurd. But there is some of the jokes that did not travel well, like a lot of um, Chinese tourist jokes mm, that mm-hmm. felt hardly, that just like hit with a race, yeah. racist. But other than that, <laughs> a lot of the stuff works like, uh, it's a lot of sight gags. I mean, my sister know like all the dialogue. So Camille was like, how do you guys like watch this every day? But we both own the VH that, VHS set because it came out when I was in high school. And I skipped school that day because it was really funny and I had to finish the movie. And then me and my sister got obsessed with it and then found them online. Worst best. And, uh, yeah. Oh, and then The Watchmen. Have you watched this? The no, but I heard yet? it's great. Oh, Jesus Christ. It's the best thing on TV right now. Okay. Okay. Everyone should watch one. And I, I thought it came out, the awards, was it? The Golden Globes? Golden yeah, the Globes. Golden Globe nominations just came out. Jacked. It was not nominated. Also, Ava DuVernay got shut out. The fucking fuck is this shit? Watchmen's a lot about race, so maybe that has something to do with yeah, that. Yeah, the Hollywood Foreign Press Association can basically eat a whole bag of dicks. <laughs> and they have been able to eat a bag of dicks for a long time. <laughs> oh, what have you been watching? Oh, <laughs> okay. So um, very on brand for me. When I was not reading Why We Can't Sleep, I've been listening to the audiobook of Vanishing New York, How a Great City Lost Its Soul Uh-oh. by Jeremiah Moss, the uh, creator of the very popular blog, uh, Vanishing New York. And I tend to do my audio listening while I'm roaming about the city. So I'm really like, the whole, the whole thing is this oral history about the roots of the hyper-gentrification that has literally decimated my spiritual home, <laughs> that has just blasted everything that is good and pure and original about the city into dust and replaced it all with city banks. And so I get a little wound up. I get a little emotional, but I feel like it's a story that needs to be told is told by someone who is the same pop culture heroes and passions that I have. So I feel heard and seen, even though it literally makes you want to run through the streets screaming and decrying Hyper gentrification at every turn. <laughs> um, some may say that I'm part of the problem because I wasn't able to move here until 2000. But you know what? I don't have a table. I'm not the problem. I'm not one of those glass towers of excess. <laughs> Come at me, brah. <laughs> um, and also, I like how um, when describing my neighborhood, Jeremiah Moss really goes extra making fun of all the frat, the NYU frat dudes who have taken over the East Village. Mm. And you very uh, observantly called the the female of the species street dolphins. Oh, that was my friend Cool Kev. 
streets often because they because <laughs> they just shriek like at a super high pitch that like you need sonar to hear in the streets. Aggressive. The, yeah, in the night. Um, but yeah, his, uh, Jeremiah Moss's description of the frat children of the night makes me laugh. <laughs> um, it's it's great on audio. I recommend it. Um, I saw the Joker movie, which is not on brand for me because I'm not like a Marvel person. I'm not like a superhero person. I was not expecting to like it, but it's not about superhero shit. It's about like a serial killer, right? Not even. I mean, yes, but it's really, I guess it depends who you're asking. But to me, it was this long exploration. Obviously, Gotham is New York, and it's this long exploration of like the consequences of what happens when a society is so crassly commercial that every the most vulnerable people are just kicked in the teeth over and over again until they form a dark army and fucking take their revenge on everyone <laughs> um when there's no like social services for people who really need them there are consequences people it's true that's and sometimes true. those consequences wear clown makeup <laughs> <laughs> um also uh joaquin phoenix was very very emaciated in it i have Mixed feelings about people who starve themselves to the brink of death for acting. I think it's weird. Um, but also, there's like some some wild shit that goes down between uh, the Joker and uh, a late night host played by Robert De Niro. And I couldn't help but wonder if it was like a weird fantasy being played out because in real life, Joaquin Phoenix had this disastrous appearance on the letterman show oh, i remember that that went mm -hmm. like so far sideways it was like wait isn't that when he was doing he was in character though right it was like a pinter play it was it was very very uncomfortable for a very long time pretending to be in a rock band kind of what a rapper yeah that was all meta thing so he <laughs> was being the character on but the he thing. was being meta and and letterman was not yeah and it was it was man's inhumanity to man. <laughs> so, <laughs> and I think, and there's like some crazy late night show stuff that happens in this. And I wonder if it's like somehow psychically linked. I, I would, people who've watched the Joker know what I'm talking about. Get at me. I want to know your thoughts. I never saw the movie elf when it came out. Apparently oh, it's cute. a holiday classic. Um, you know, like, gremlins. That's a holiday. <laughs> oh my classic. God. Gremlins <laughs> is the best. I'm with you that gremlins is the best Christmas movie ever made. But this is very good, and I didn't know. And I watched it, and I thought it, yeah, it was cute. charming. Um, sometimes I take it for granted that not all movies are set in New York. <laughs> <laughs> I will say that it made me excited to spend the holidays in New York, because often I do not. But <laughs> this year I am, and it made me excited. Oh, I am too, in theory, unless my mom changes her mind again. <laughs> really? Okay. Yeah, I'm in, I'm out, I'm in, I'm out. If you want to have Jewish Christmas with me, Chinese food, movies, good times. <laughs> Let me know. <laughs> we um, and finally, I have this year has been my year of Harry Potter. I never read Harry Potter really? until now. Oh, Guess what? You. They're good. They're good. <laughs> I since the last show, I read Harry Potter book six, The Half Blood Prince, and I watched the movie. And when that thing that happened at the end of book six happened, and at the end of movie six happened, mm -hmm. you better believe that I cried. Real tears. You people who know Harry Potter know what I'm talking yeah. about. No clue. I was devastated, and I'm not going to be a spoiler, but know that 
the end of book six is very it's very hard have you read seven yet I am beginning seven. Oh, you're in for a treat. Seven, it really, it does. It wraps it all up. It's, it's well so done. So wait, is there a movie for each book? Or There's do they a movie smush for each them book, but book together seven has two movies yeah. because it's so jam-packed with action. Ah, okay. One is almost all camping. The whole movie is camping. And then- They did seven Harry Potter movies? Eight. Eight. Those kids are rich. Those kids are fucking <laughs> rich. And that, my friends, is what I have been watching. Thank you so much, Ada Calhoun. Thank you. Oh, thanks for having me. For I've got a whole list on. of stuff. I've been, I'm way behind on my pop culture, so now I've, I've got a list. I've been wanting to meet you for so long, and I'm so oh. excited that we finally met. I'm so glad, too. Um, thanks to our producers, Jesse Karen and Kate Moldenauer at More Banana Productions. Of course, our luscious sound engineer, Logan Del Fuego. <laughs> Muy caliente. And to our girl gang at Bust Magazine. You can find me on Twitter at Emily Rems and on Instagram at Rems Emily because someone took Emily Rems. Ada Calhoun, where can people find you? Um, AdaCalhoun.com. Perfect. And don't try to find Callie on no, the socials. No, 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 no. She doesn't want to be found. She won't be found. You can email us both. I'm at Emily Rems at bust.com. I'm Callie W at bust.com. And you can learn more about this show at bust.com slash Pop-Tarts. Finally, please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts. On my vision board for 2020 is us being so much more famous than we are now. And it's not <laughs> going to happen unless you guys start rating and reviewing us on iTunes. Come on. Also, to sweeten the deal, if you rate and review us on iTunes with a nice little review and then you email Callie or I and say, hey, I'm riotgirl999. And I wrote that you guys have the best podcast ever. And then we look on our iTunes page and it's there. We'll give you a free subscription to Bust Magazine. It's like that. We have that power. Oh. We can do it like that. <laughs> Try us. See what happens. Um, it really helps us get the word out. And we super duper appreciate it. Until next time. Mwah! <laughs>